Well, before we uh, turn to 1 Peter 2, uh, just two quick announcements. First one, um, we have our Easter and Good Friday services, like reverse order, Good Friday and Easter services coming up soon. That'll be April 15th and April 17th. Uh, Good Friday, we're going to be having a service in the bottom, the basement area of our church building, uh, which is on 1919 South Highland Avenue, and we'll be having our Easter service here. So we, uh, we have some flyers that are in the back, so if you have people in your life who you would like to invite to come to one of those services, I encourage you to grab one of these flyers uh, in the back on your way out and pass those out to people who may be interested in coming to a church service. <clears throat> Second announcement, uh, we're going to be having a church potluck which is no longer a thing of the past, which we're excited about. So uh, we're going to be having a potluck on April 24th, so some details will be coming out about that, about what to bring. But just so you know, right after the church service, Sunday, April 24th, we'll be enjoying a meal here at, the, here at this building um, after the service. Well, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to be opening up from 1 Peter 2. But let's pray together before we do that. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We ask now as we come to your living and holy word that you would use it to form us, to shape us after the likeness of your son, Christ. I ask that you make me transparent, all these things that we do today transparent so that we might see Jesus clearly. We pray this in his name. Amen. If any of you have ever visited Spain or if you love beautiful architecture, you may have heard of or seen uh, what I believe is one now one of the longest building projects still going on today, which is a cathedral named the Sagrada Familia. Back in 1883, an architect named Antony Gaudi began working on it. There's a number of things that make this particular cathedral unique. Um, It has these four different faces that are facing different directions, meant to tell the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. It has many, many different spires that are enormous. And as you walk up to the cathedral, depending on which side you walk up to, you're going to get a very different picture of a vision for what it should look like. On one side, it kind of looks like one of those those sandcastles you make at the beach where you kind of let the wet sand drip out of your hands. On another side, it's kind of had this uh, hauntingly angular look. And all these sides are telling some aspect of the story of Jesus. You walk into the building, and it's unlike any building you've ever seen before. It looks like you've walked into a living forest of trees. But the trees are the pillars that are holding up the enormous weight of this cathedral. So every section inside also has this, uh, this like themed part of the stained, stained glass themed with colors. So you kind of walk from red and then to green, etc. as you go through, go through the building. And in its time since the 1880s, this cathedral's had obviously several architects working on it, but all of them are trying to kind of put their spin on what they saw as Gaudi's original vision of a cathedral that essentially evoked a sense of wonder and worship as you walk up to and inside of it. Gaudi believed that nature was the greatest architecture. And so in this cathedral, he was trying to mimic the living world as he built it. And so the result is a building that as you walk up to and into it, actually does feel a bit like it's alive. Now, I'm not at all well-informed in architecture. I know nothing about it, really, besides you know, the tour that they do in Chicago. But I find this building truly breathtaking when you look at it. It's worth a Google search when you get home to see it. And part of why I love it is that it provides a very small, but I think 
real picture of the grandeur of God's actual dwelling place, the spiritual house that Jesus is building, the living spiritual house, which is made up of us, God's, God's chosen children. So before we get too much farther, I want to read our passage, 1 Peter 2. So if you have a Bible, please open up to that. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. I invite you to follow along with me as I read. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. As we're continuing our way through the book of 1 Peter, this passage, Peter's going to use this architectural metaphor to describe and explain what is a spiritual reality for us. Just like the stones that were once used to build up God's temple, each person who believes in Christ, Peter says, is like a building block in God's true temple. Now in this passage today, we're going to see that Peter, as an author and as a person, was soaked in a very different culture than ours. He was soaked in a culture that, that was heavily steeped in the Old Testament, in the practices and, and teachings of the Old Covenant. <clears throat> and that means a couple things for us today. The first, throughout our passage, there are a ton of Old Testament quotations, and there's even more allusions. And we're going to be able to look at a few of them. We won't get to all of them, but this entire passage is packed with an understanding of God's work that he started with his people, the people of Israel, and he continues through us today. Now, the second thing uh, that we need to keep in mind is as we go through this passage, there's two big concepts uh, that we may not be as familiar with, or they may have different connotations to us than they had to Peter. And those two ideas are temple and priests. Temple and priests. They're not words we use all that often. But my hope today is that we're going to see their relevance for our lives as believers as we consider these verses. And in order to do that, we're going to look at three main ideas in this text. The first idea is that God is with us. The second is that Christ sets our trajectory as believers. And third, God calls us to be priests. God is with us. Christ sets our trajectory and God calls us to be priests. And it's my hope as we consider these three things that we would have a deeper understanding and appreciation for God, for how God intends to grow us and use us as his people. So let's take a look at our first point, that God is with us. So look again with me at verses 4 and 5, if you have your Bibles. Peter writes this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, Peter is saying here that all of us who are Christians are being built up as a spiritual house. In other words, we're being built into the dwelling place for God's presence. Now, the question of where God's presence was or where God's presence dwelt was a really important one for the nation of Israel. After Israel's encounter with God at Mount Sinai, if you were to go up to a theologically astute Israelite and ask him, where is God? Where does God live? Where is his presence? He would tell you, most likely, well, God is everywhere. God's in all places. However, God has chosen to specifically and specially give us his presence in the tabernacle, which was this movable tent that God designed to move along with the nation of Israel as they, uh, as they sojourned throughout the different places that they traveled to. And in certain moments, especially when God's glory would fall on the temple and the cloud would cover it, and in those moments, this Israelite would most likely tell you those were special holy moments and that not even Moses could go into the tabernacle. Now, if you fast forward in Israel's history to right after the temple was built, if you were to ask this Israelite's great, many greats granddaughter the same question, where does God live? She would tell you, well, God lives everywhere. He's over all the nations. But he is especially chosen to put his presence, to, to place his glory in the temple. And most especially in the central part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. But only the high priest can go in there. And he can only go in once a year. But this is how Israel understood God's presence. God is everywhere, but he is kindly and graciously chosen to reveal himself most clearly among his people, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And those as acting essentially as protections so that people wouldn't be hurt by God's glory. That is how he chose to place his glory and his presence in the middle of his people. But... There's a really important moment that comes in the book of Ezekiel. <clears throat> Ezekiel has been taken into exile into Babylon, where many of God's people have been taken into exile. And he records this moment of seeing God's throne moving towards him in Babylon. And later in Ezekiel, he sees a vision of God's glory leaving the temple. Now the point that Ezekiel is seeing here is that God's glory did not, was not contained to the temple. God's glory, God's presence was with his exiles in the land of Babylon. Now, if you remember back to 1 Peter chapter 1, when Peter begins the book by addressing us as believers, his readers as, who are believers, as elect exiles, you might begin to see some of the connections that Peter's making here, and that Ezekiel was recognizing as well. God's presence is not confined to a location. It's not confined to a building. God chooses to have his presence dwell where his people are. And this is the point that Peter's making in our passage. If God's presence dwells among God's people, then the real temple is wherever God's people are. And that, brothers and sisters, is you. You are the stones of the temple. You are the living stones that God is using to build his spiritual house. And that first living stone, as you probably noticed in verse 4, is Jesus himself. If you look down at the verse, Peter writes this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. 
I'm guessing Peter's remembering the moment here when Jesus looked at the temples, or excuse me, looked at the temple with his disciples, and he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Which would be like one of us saying, knock down this auditorium, and in three days I'll take care of it. I can build this back up. The disciples, John records that Jesus was not talking about the temple. He was talking about his body. Looking ahead to the day soon when his body would be torn apart for the sins of his people and then be brought back to life three days later. So when we come to Christ as believers, we are made, like him, the place where God dwells. When we say God is with us, it means he's with us. Right here. We as a body are where God promises to be. And we're fairly low on the mysticism scale here at Hope Fellowship, which in many ways is a very good thing. But sometimes we might miss the fact that there's something holy going on when we do this right here, when we gather together as God's people. Because this is where God promises to be, when we get together as the living stones making up the temple of God. Same goes if you were to attend a church in Singapore today, or in the Ivory Coast, Anywhere where they trust in Jesus and believe in his word. And these gatherings where the church gathers in the name of Christ, that is where God promises to be present. And of course, we know God is with us all the time, just as those Israelites would have known. But there's something special and some special way that God's presence comes when we all gather as his people. I want to mention two brief applications of that before we continue. The first one, if you feel that you are far away from God or that you've been drifting, this is where you're going to find him. This is where God promises to be. It's not in some silly movie way where the person who's in turmoil sits in the back of an empty church or cathedral and kind of looks up at the cross or the crucifix, and we're supposed to kind of recognize that they're in turmoil in some way. That's not where God promises to be. It's not the building. It's where God's people gather together. So my encouragement to you is this. Don't neglect meeting with the church, coming to church, if you want to grow close to God. Second, as you interact with other believers, brothers and sisters, I encourage you to remember this. That brother is a living stone that has been chosen by God. That sister is a part of God's spiritual house. Now, earlier back in 1 Peter chapter 2, as Kevin showed us last week, Peter encourages us to avoid divisive words and malice, other evil things that can tear a church apart. I believe this is part of how we do that, recognizing that all of us are part of the chosen and precious stones that make up the temple of God. And we are all being fashioned after the first living stone, which is Jesus himself, which is going to bring us to our second point, that Christ sets our trajectory. So look with me again at verses 6 through 8, 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. As you've noticed, this passage has a lot to do with construction. This metaphor of construction runs through much of it. Because we as Christians are building our lives, or God is building our lives, on the foundation of Jesus Christ himself. And you notice that Peter is referring to Jesus here as a cornerstone. 
In other words, he is the stone that sets the trajectory for the rest of the building. The cornerstone was typically the first stone laid for a building. Every stone after was laid that was used, used that stone as its guide. It set the trajectory for the rest of the building. Now, I was reading an article in Time Magazine about the construction of the Sagrada Familia this week, and it was talking about, uh, the interviewer was talking to one of the builders, and as they were doing so, a 25-ton piece of stone was being put into place on a crane, which is, if you're good at math, you know this quickly, 50,000 pounds. A 50,000-pound piece of stone was being put in place. That was interesting to me, even though they acknowledged that it was incredible that it was happening, it was kind of commonplace. This is kind of what's happening all along during the building of this cathedral. Which got me thinking, if this thing's been under construction since the 1880s, that means that they have been progressively adding 50,000 pound pieces of stone onto this thing for over a century. Which made me wonder, I wonder how much this entire thing weighs if you were able to actually find a way to weigh it, which I don't think there is a way to do that. But it would be a lot of tonnage. When you build a big building, those early stones of the foundation are really, really important. I can't imagine getting to year 140 of a building project and discovering that someone didn't make the foundation straight enough to hold all the weight securely. Which is what happened with the Leaning Tower of Pisa, by the way. If you've ever wondered why it's leaning, it's because the foundation began to kind of sink under one part of it as they were building it, and they literally had to shorten the uphill side of it as they went up, which is why it oddly looks straight and crooked at the same time. But I think that's actually a helpful contrast to understand Peter's point here. Crooked foundation equals crooked building. When people began making something other than Christ and him crucified, what they rally around, what they build their lives on, it eventually will result in a crooked building. And eventually, either you have to stop building crooked buildings or they collapse to the shame of their builders. Whatever you build your life on, that is the trajectory for your life. Now, if you're wondering, well, what does that mean if you're building your life on something other than Christ? It's confusing. Like, what's the trajectory of building your life on money? It's confusing for a reason. Money doesn't promise a clear trajectory to you other than making your heart like itself, which is decayed and rusting. And even if the cornerstone of your life is subtly off-kilter, eventually it does become crooked. But if Jesus is the cornerstone for your life, then he is what sets your trajectory. And his trajectory, as we know, is suffering in this life. His trajectory is physical death. But then, his trajectory is resurrection and eternal life. A new body that lives for eternity. Now, as I think about Peter's original audience, I imagine that would have been a very poignant encouragement to them. They were certainly being persecuted. They were likely being mocked for their trust in Christ. But, Peter's saying, this isn't a surprise. This is part of the roadmap. This is part of the trajectory of being a follower of Christ. And there's more coming. There's more beyond suffering and persecution. So Peter wants to remind us to keep our eyes fixed on our Savior. That's where our security lies, the promise of a straight cornerstone. The trajectory is not only rejection by men, but do you see what else he says in verse 4? We are chosen and precious in God's sight. That's the trajectory of building your life on Christ. 
and he will make sure that you are not put to shame for your faith in him. Now, I want to talk briefly about that, that word, um, excuse me, chosen, chosen and precious. The first two times that Peter uses it, he's talking about Jesus, if you see that in verses 4 and 6. The third time he uses it to talk about us, in verse 9, chosen. That's the same word Peter uses in his opening words when he called his readers elect exiles. That word elect and chosen are the same word in Greek. So what is true of Christ is true of any of you who are his followers. If you trust in Christ, God has elected you. He's chosen you to save. You are now part of his family. And because he's chosen you, you are eternally secure in him. You are precious in God's sight. And the shame of your sins was placed on Jesus. And that was put to death once for all. Now, I want to talk briefly about that word shame as well. We are approaching Easter soon, as we just mentioned, where we get to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior and our King from the dead. But before Easter comes Good Friday, as I mixed up a moment ago. But Good Friday is the moment when we most clearly see how Jesus took our shame upon himself. Jesus had never fallen short of any standard. He had never done any wrong. But he was the one that had to publicly drag his cross up that hill instead of you. He had never fallen short of any standard. He was the one who had a mocking crown of thorns put on his head by a jeering crowd instead of you. He was wrongly exposed and punished as a sinner, but never did anything wrong instead of you. I think we need this reminder. What the cross reminds us of is that on the cross, when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant that it is finished. Which means the shame that you rightly deserve for your sin was already taken by Christ. And so as you come to him, the promise that God gives is that you will never be put to shame. That is the promise for believers. But there's another side to this coin. As you probably noticed in verse 7 and 8, Jesus sets your trajectory whether you are a believer or not. Take a look again with me at verses 7 and 8. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. Now this is two more places, there are two more places here where Peter quotes from the Old Testament. Psalm 118, which we use as our call to worship this morning, and Isaiah 8. Now interestingly enough, Jesus also quotes from Psalm 118 in Matthew chapter 21, and Acts also records Peter using this psalm. And in both cases, Jesus and Peter are using it to condemn religious leaders of the Jews for ignoring the cornerstone of their faith, Jesus. So what Peter's wanting us to see is that you can't build God's people without Christ. Religious leaders cannot build God's people without Christ. And if they try, they will stumble. Peter says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You probably noticed that as we read. That is an uncomfortable phrase, that they were destined to do this. But I do think it's important we understand what this means. When people try to build on something other than Jesus is the foundation. That activity is still under God's sovereign hand of control. Now, there is some tension in these verses. 
Uh, the disobedience of the, of the leaders here, that's an active verb. They're responsible for their disobedience. Destined is a passive one, passive verb. God doesn't make them disobey, but it is still under his sovereign hand of control. That tension's a good thing for us, as awkward as it might sound or as uncomfortable as it might sound. As I mentioned, Peter probably has religious leaders specifically in mind in verses 7 and 8 here. And if he has those religious leaders specifically in mind, that tension is good because if that were not the case, if religious leaders' disobedience to Jesus was not under the sovereign hand and sovereign control of God, then we would have very little guarantee that some very charismatic, very engaging, very popular religious leader who tries to build on the foundation of their own very appealing personality, we would have no guarantee that that person's influence would necessarily stop or that they would be held accountable for it one day. But God is sovereign over those things, even if they ignore Christ. And I, th- I find that to be comforting to us when we see religious leaders fail to build on Christ and oftentimes fail in very public and spectacular ways that we can know that God is still somehow at work through that and will be at work through it. Now, while Peter seems to be directing this warning primarily at spiritual leaders, <clears throat> and especially the Jewish spiritual leaders who are ignoring Jesus, I think this warning does actually, though, apply for anybody. Whoever you are, you at some point will have to reckon with Jesus. Even though the builders rejected him, they still stumbled over him. You can't wish him away. The cornerstone remains and will always remain there. At some point, every person in this room is going to have to answer the question, who do you believe that Jesus is? Will you accept his offer to take your sin and your shame? to transform you into a living stone of God's spiritual house? Or will you reject him and try to build your life on a different foundation? You can answer that question now, or you can answer it on Judgment Day. If you wait until Judgment Day, that day will be very awful for you. The cornerstone is there, so do not ignore it. I want to move on to our last couple verses and to our very last point of the day, of the morning, which is this, that God gives us the task of being priests. So let's look again at verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So if you see here, God is giving believers a task. If you are a part of God's people, what Peter is saying here is you are a priest. You're a priest. And if you look back in verse 5, you probably noticed that Peter says the same thing. We are built up as God's house in order to be a priesthood so that we can offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Now, as I mentioned, we don't use that word priest very often here, but this is a concept that is very, very closely bound up with being part of God's people. Now, the way God set this up as early as Exodus is that there would be these concentric circles of priesthood. It would start with the high priest, the primary person who would go before the Lord into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifices on behalf of all God's people. And then there were all the other priests 
who would help God's people worship and offer sacrifices to God, help, him, help them worship him well. But then the last and widest circle of priests was the entire group of God's people. So listen as I read Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. <clears throat> now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, this is God speaking to Israel, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So just like God's people came to the priests to help them approach God, the entire nation of Israel was supposed to go to the other nations around them and help them come and approach God as well. But they failed in that job many, many times over. And instead of telling the other nations how powerful and how awesome and how merciful Yahweh was, is, they decided to worship the false and evil gods of the other nations. And as a result, the nations around Israel didn't hear of the steadfast love of the Lord for those who called on his name. But what Peter is saying here is that same job, that job of being priests to the world, that still belongs to God's people. And now God's people are any who have received mercy from Jesus. And the job of being priests has a couple very important responsibilities. You probably picked them up as we've read the passage a few times today so far. The first responsibility is to worship God. And the second responsibility is to proclaim his excellencies. So now we know we don't sacrifice animals or grain or any of the old, old Testament sacrificial system anymore. That is no longer part of how we worship God. But as Paul says in Romans 12, instead we offer our bodies to God as living sacrifices. And those sacrifices, Peter says in verse 5, are acceptable to God. <clears throat> now I want to take a moment and reflect on that. We saw earlier how we build our lives on Christ trusting we won't be put to shame by doing that. And we see here that the sacrifice of our lives and the worship that we then offer to God is acceptable. It's acceptable not because of the merit of what we're bringing to God, but because of the merit of the high priest through whom it goes. The merit of Jesus. Now, I think if we think about that, that might change the way that we offer worship and praise to God. When we praise God, it comes through Jesus, and the Father delights in the Son. He is chosen and precious in God's sight. So when you think about that, what that means is that a few moments ago, when you were singing to God, singing praise to him, God was actually delighting and those songs that you sang to him, and the words that were coming from your mind and your heart. When you thank him for your food, God delights in that small prayer. And when you choose to live your life as a sacrifice to God, following the trajectory of our Savior, God accepts that sacrifice because he accepts his son. So I just encourage you, think about how God is receiving your worship, your acts of worship to him. And I think it will change your experience of your worship to God. Now, there's another task that comes with being a priest, and that is the task of proclamation. As Peter says in verse 9, we are priests so that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is what that means. When you go to your next family meal, you are a priest to all the people sitting around that table, big and small. 
Your task is to proclaim God's excellencies there and to be a witness in small and large ways of how God has called you from darkness into light. When you go to work tomorrow, you are your company's priest. You are the witness. You are to be a witness of what God has done in your life. I was trying to think, this is silly to imagine, I recognize, but I was trying to imagine what it would be like if I had asked my first boss out of college for a title change, like whatever my title was, plus company priest, which is silly, I know. Like it's a ridiculous thing to think, think about. But that is the true reality of your position in these places. You're a priest to your coworkers. You're a priest to your families. Because one of the major ways that God communicates to the world around us is through you. God communicates in a major way to the world around us through you. And as part of God's people, we've been shown mercy so that we can proclaim that mercy to others so that they too can receive that mercy and enjoy the excellencies of our King. Now, I can't help but imagine that Peter's exuberance here is coming in some ways from his memory of the mercy that he received from Jesus. This is the disciple who boldly proclaimed in front of a lot of people that he would never leave Jesus' side. And then hours later, had publicly disowned him, denied him three times. And what was Jesus' response to him? To forgive him, to publicly restore him, and to give him the task of then praising and proclaiming the excellencies of his merciful Savior. So I hope as we go out from here today, this idea gets stuck in our minds. That God has called you into a people of priests. And the role that comes with the task of taking the good news of God's excellent mercy and giving it to people who are not yet a part of God's people. And also proclaiming God's excellencies to those who are a part of God's people. But brothers and sisters, we've received great, great mercy. As Peter says, you've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. The promise of that mercy is as strong as the one it's built on. It's as strong as Jesus Christ himself. And if you trust in him, you are one of God's people. He has taken your sin. He has taken your shame. And he has given you the excellencies of his own mercy. And that comes with the task, to be priests who praise God and proclaim his goodness and mercy to those all around us. And by God's grace, we pray that those who don't know him will too know the blessing of being coming a part of God's people. This is what it means to be a part of God's living temple, to be a part of his people. God is with us. Christ has set the trajectory for our lives. And God has given us the task of proclaiming the excellent mercies of Christ to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you that you have given Christ to us. Jesus, we thank you that you have come to be our living stone cornerstone of our faith and of our lives. Father, we thank you that through Christ and because of him, you promised that none of us will ever be put to shame. And so we ask that you would give our hearts gratitude, softness to your gracious love towards us. And we ask that you would use us as your priests to give worship to you and to proclaim your goodness and your mercy to all who are around us. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior.